Uh, today we're going to be focusing on Matthew 5, starting with verse 13, uh, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. While you're doing that, I would like to perform an experiment, a test, if you will, of your observational skills. You see, with my amazing artistic abilities, I've drawn for you three pictures. Your job is just to tell me which one is different than the others. I gotta warn you, it's pretty tricky. All right, you ready? Here it is. <laughs> so if you didn't catch it, it, it was the third one, the one in orange there. And uh, yeah, pretty easy, right? Uh, the point of this is to show you that people notice when things are different, especially when they're very clearly different. They're not trying to be hidden. You know, this, this figure in orange, this represents us as Christians. And yes, I did draw us as the coolest on purpose. <laughs> you see, when we are living our lives the way God calls us to, we will naturally stand out, stand apart from the world. In fact, we are called to stand out, to stand apart from the world. Take a look at what Jesus says in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So let's, let's stop and talk about this salt for a second. We all know how salt tastes. It's salty. And Jesus says that if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything to just throw it out. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Got salt not salty, throw it out. It's useless, right? Oh, wait. Uh, we're the salt. Christians are the salt. That very quickly becomes a scary verse. If we aren't doing what Jesus has called us to do, fulfilling the role of salt, we're useless. So, I guess the question is then, what does it mean to fulfill the role of being the salt of the earth? Well, in order to truly understand that, we need to read the next three verses. Starting in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus calls us the light of the world. He calls us to stand out. I mean, it, it's right there. You know, stand, or sorry, <laughs> lamps are put on a stand for all to see. A city on a hill uh, can't be hidden. Our job as Christians, as both the salt and the light, is to stand out. A Christian who does not stand apart from the world is useless. And did you notice in that last verse, he even gives us the reason that we are to stand out. Verse 16, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Not so that you may tell people of your good deeds, but so that they will see. When we live as God wants us to, it is evident abundantly clear, and it will bring glory to God. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you 
to give the reason for the hope that you have. You know, sometimes in order to understand what the Bible does say, we first have to understand what it does not say. The Bible does not say, always be prepared to give an argument for the existence of God. Instead, it says, be prepared to give an answer to those who ask for the reason of the hope that we have. Did you catch that? They ask because people see this hope that we have. They see that we're different from the world. And it makes them curious. How is this person different? And, and conversations start and lives are changed. When we live as Jesus calls us to, we stand out. So, what are some ways in which we're called to live that help us to stand out? These can be broken up into three categories. What we say, how we live, and what's in our hearts. First category, what we say. We need to realize that though our words are small, they can have a profound impact. Take a look at what James says in James chapter three, verses two through six. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow. Here, James provides us with some very strong analogies regarding the strength of our words, even going so far as to say that the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. This very clearly shows that what we say is important. We can use our words to lead people to Christ or to push them away from him. Now, we're all taught this from a young age. I mean, most, if not all Christians, know that the Bible says not to be cursing people. It's actually just a few verses down, uh, verse 9 and 10 in James chapter 3, uh, if you want to check that out. Now, I don't dispute the fact that this is important. We need to be watching our language. However, while I know that, that that's an issue for some, it, it's widely known, it's widely taught. However, there is a problem in the world and in the church that I think needs to be addressed. Now, just a heads up, this is actually my least favorite verse in the Bible. It's because it, it really challenges me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I love to argue. Uh, especially stupid arguments. I mean, conspiracy theories, flat earth, how many holes are in a straw? <laughs> I'll argue about anything, and, and it's really fun for me. However, I've seen time and time again where, like the verse says, it produces quarrels and hurt feelings and conflict. And as much as I don't like to admit it, it can push people 
away from Jesus. When I, as a representative of Jesus, create conflict through stupid arguments, I, re I represent Jesus very poorly. Now, maybe you aren't a conspiracy theorist. Maybe you don't like to argue for fun. But there's something that all of us can do to improve in this area. What about when people start putting up Christmas decorations the day after Halloween? What about when somebody has the wrong opinion on your favorite sports team? Now, I'm not saying that you can't argue at all, but you need to identify. Is the topic important? Does it matter? Is it building bridges or is it burning them? Because I would say for the majority of things, let it go, it doesn't matter. It's not worth potentially pushing someone away from Jesus. Instead of arguing like the world does, let's stand apart from the world by using our words to unite us and to build each other up. I mean, this is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. We need to encourage people. I mean, we need to encourage everybody, but especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we, who are all a part of the same body of believers, aren't encouraging one another, then who will? In this world, where there's very little encouragement, let's stand out by lifting each other up with our words. Now, the second category of ways we're called to live to help us stand out. It's our actions. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 2.12, where Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You see, people notice when we have good deeds. In this verse, much like Matthew 5.16, we're told that they will see our good deeds and glorify God. You see, our, our deeds can lead people to Christ. So it's, it's then worth asking, what does it mean to live a good life? What, what are these good deeds that we need to be doing? Now, there's many things that can be said here. There's numerous examples of good deeds and lives well lived. But I don't need to go into every example because they all have an overarching theme. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find it. It's all over the Bible. It's love. We are called to love. I mean, just look at what Jesus says when he's asked what the greatest commandment is. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, in whatever we do, we are to show love. Love is so important that it is the main theme of both of the two greatest commandments. When we love God and we love others, everything else falls into place, and we naturally stand apart from the world. This is exactly what Jesus says in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are simply called to love one another. The command is easy enough to understand, although in practice, 
uh, it's much more difficult. You know, it could be as easy as putting up with someone who annoys you or being there for a friend uh, who's in need. But it could be more difficult. It could be loving your enemies. It could be forgiving someone who's hurt you. Now, I can't tell you what your step of love to take is, but I do know that God has written something on all of your hearts. Speaking of, we have come to the final category. We stand out because of what is in our hearts. Now, some people might ask, why do we need to change our hearts? I mean, it's on the inside. Nobody sees it. It's all good. And I'll admit, that is a, a tempting way to think. I'll, I'll do my good deeds. I'll, I'll act all good on the outside. We'll just leave the heart how it is. But if you think that people can't see your heart, I would reconsider that. Take a look at Luke 6.45. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You see, our hearts are extremely important. If our hearts aren't in the right place, neither will our words or our actions be, and we will represent Christ very poorly. So, how do you change your heart? Well, uh, you can't. You can no more change your heart than you can change your height. And trust me, I've tried. <laughs> However, unlike my vertical deficiencies, your heart can be changed, but not by your power, by God's. God tells the Israelites in Ezekiel 36 that even though they have profaned his holy name through disobedience time and time again, he will change their hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Luckily for us, God has the power to forgive our shortcomings turn our hearts from their wicked desires, from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, hearts for him. By accepting Jesus, we have been given a new heart. The question is, will we use them to stand out from the world in our actions and in our words for the glory of God? Let's pray. God, I thank you for gathering us here today. I pray that you will allow everyone here the strength to do what is right, to stand apart from the world in, in all the ways that will point to you and give you glory. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name's Easton Perkins, um, and I'm a freshman at Johnson University in Tennessee this year. Uh, but this week, I was back living in northern Kentucky with my family, and it brought back a memory um, of a night a couple months ago before I had left for college. I remember I was in my basement uh, reading or watching TV or something. I don't exactly remember, but I do remember it was late. It was sometime past midnight, and I knew that the rest of the house was already asleep. So I decided it was time for me to go to bed, too. I finished up what I was doing, and I remember I turned off the lights, and it was pitch black. 
and I started to walk up the stairs. And when I got up a few steps, I remember I broke into a slight jog. And by the time I was at the top of the steps, I was leaping up the last few. And as I stood at the top of the stairs, a little more out of breath than I'd like to admit, I remember I thought, why did I just sprint up the stairs? I had nothing to be afraid of in the basement. In fact, I'd been down there alone, probably for hours, while the rest of the house was sleeping. But I still sprinted up the stairs. And then I remembered that when I was a kid, probably eight or nine years old, I used to forget to turn off the basement lights when I went upstairs to brush my teeth and get ready for bed. So I would always have to go back down by myself and turn off the lights. And when I did that, I would always run up the steps, skipping two, three, sometimes even four entire steps. But I do remember falling more times than actually making that jump. I just remember I would be completely terrified after the room was dark. I was scared of what was lurking in the dark, or maybe just the dark itself. Even if I had checked out the whole room, I still ended up running up the stairs all the way through the house and oftentimes back into my bed before throwing the covers over myself. And maybe I'm not the only one who used to run up the stairs after they turned the lights off. But looking back, this is a pretty silly story. I like to think that since I'm not scared of the dark anymore, I've kind of mastered my own fear. But after looking at my own life, along with the current day church, I would say we're just as controlled by fear today as I was a decade ago, running away from imaginary monsters. But living a life of fear is simply the human condition. There's nothing I can stand up here and say today that's gonna make you never fear anything for the rest of your life. However, it is necessary to at least recognize our own fear. And fear is the number one cause of people, as well as the church, being held back from achieving the work we're called to do. As of today, there's an estimated 2.17 billion Christians, yet only around 400,000 global missionaries. And out of those missionaries, only 3% travel to the 1040 window, which is an area between the latitude and lines of 10 and 40, which encompasses North Africa as well as South Asia. And this window includes the most dangerous countries to evangelize in, but also includes the majority of the world's unevangelized countries. Children, people aren't going to the 1040 window because they're scared of the persecution going on there, scared of losing their lives. And parents aren't teaching their kids about going to the 1040 window and being missionaries because they're afraid that they'll listen to them and pursue this dangerous career. The fear is holding us back from fulfilling our main purpose on the earth. Matthew 24, 14 says, and this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But fear doesn't just control Christians in the aspect of going into foreign nations where our lives are at risk. Fear even controls our day-to-day -day actions. When's the last time you invited a friend to church? Had a conversation with a coworker or classmate about Jesus. I'm guessing there's not a lack of opportunity in many of your lives, but instead a fear of what people might think of you. 
I remember in high school, I certainly didn't want to be known as the church guy by everyone. People might look at you a little differently or think you're kind of weird. But sometimes this isn't even a conscious decision that we make. Just like I wasn't scared of the dark two months ago, but I still found myself running up the steps, oftentimes we find ourselves in a routine. Maybe you find yourself in a routine of acting a little bit less Christian when you're at work or school. Maybe a routine of giving a certain amount. Maybe a routine of not moving to Asia to become a missionary. Maybe you feel like fear doesn't rule your life, you're just following your routine. But if your routine is rooted in fear, then even though you don't feel scared, you're still being controlled by fear. Something important that we have to determine, dispel, determine if we disp- want to dispel ourselves of a fearful life is what fear is and what fear is not. One important distinction that we have to make off the bat is the difference between fear and anxiety. McClellan Mental Hospital says, fear is the response to a perceived threat, while anxiety is the worry about a threat that is not yet or may never happen. Fear is our reaction, our action of avoiding what might cause us harm, either physically, socially, financially, emotionally, it could be anything. But fear stops us from doing things even when we're called to do them. While anxiety does not inherently affect your actions. Last year, my brother traveled to Nepal to trek through the mountains and gain information about the different religions of different areas. During the time he was over there, I saw anxiety in my parents. They loved my brother and he was in a dangerous environment far away from them, from any protection they could provide. And in the same way, when I was leaving for school a couple months ago, I felt anxiety. I was gonna be away from my family for months, living apart from my parents for the first time in my life. But these feelings didn't lead to sin. In either of these scenarios, in fact, it was out of a place of love for the things that God had placed in our lives that made us feel so anxious. And I think it's vital when talking about fear and anxiety to separate the two and acknowledge that anxiety is not a sin. Anxiety does not come from a lack of faith. Jesus was sweating blood before he was crucified. And I've never been so anxious that I sweat blood, but even if I did, I could still be fearless because Jesus still fearlessly went through with the crucifixion. My parents supported my brother through his stint in Nepal, and I still went through with my decision to be a Johnson and to study ministry. Being anxious is borderline unavoidable. In fact, I would be a little bit concerned if you had nothing in your life that you cared about so much that it gave you some anxiety. We have to fight for this anxiety to stay a feeling and not become fear which controls our actions. Finally, we must ask the question, how can we live fearlessly? The phrase, do not be afraid, appears about, in about 70 verses throughout the Bible. And this short saying is one of my favorite commandments that God gives us, but this is not how I, where I looked when determining how to live a fearless life. Instead, I looked to the life of Paul. I would say that Paul's the greatest missionary who ever lived. He had many traits that helped him along the way, but fearlessness is the biggest factor. In Acts 14, we see Paul preaching the gospel in Lystra. And although he had won some of the crowd over, 
a few Jewish Pharisees came to turn the crowd against him, and they succeeded. And along with the crowd, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city. Paul eventually woke up as the crowd had failed to fully kill him. And when he woke up, he got up, brushed himself off, and walked back into the city to preach the same message as before. And this is only one of many stories that Paul is so fearless and unflinching in the sight of danger that it easily could have got him killed. So where does Paul get all this bravery? And why is the average churchgoer today not displaying the fearlessness that Paul shows us throughout his entire ministry? The answer to this is found in one of Paul's letters displayed in the New Testament. I looked to Philippians 4.13 to find Paul's source of bravery, and I didn't have to look very hard because this is actually one I remember memorizing as a kid. I can do all things through Jesus Christ, my Lord, who gives me strength. I remember a famous basketball player used this as his slogan. He would put it on his shirts and write it on his shoes. He even quoted it in a couple interviews. And maybe this is the reason why I remember it so well. But today, we need to look at the real context and real meaning that Paul meant as he was writing this. Because I can confidently say that Paul wasn't thinking about MVPs or NBA championships when writing this verse. I think a good translation of this verse is the Common English Bibles, which says, I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. The word endure makes a lot of sense when looking at the context of this verse. Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter, and he's updating and encouraging the Philippians on his state of being. And when he talks about the prospect of the Philippians sending him money, he says, I know what it's like to be rich, and I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to be hungry, and I know what it's like to be well-fed. And this leads us into verse 13, where he says, Through it all, he has learned to endure anything, hunger, poverty, imprisonment, and still be able to be joyful and serve the Lord. And Paul believes this. Throughout his whole story, Paul lives like he can endure any feat. And for the first part of Paul's life, he was an esteemed Jewish Pharisee. He was looked up to by his community, and he was respected by his peers. And then he was called to follow Jesus. Paul knew this would cost him the acceptance and respect of his community. And living a life where people don't respect you or accept you is a real fear a fear that controls many people's lives today. I would even say every person in this room's. We're all fighting for the approval of someone, our teachers, our bosses, our spouses, maybe our friends. But Paul decided he could endure the lack of respect and he could endure the lack of approval. And he answered God's call. Paul went on to preach to the nations, and he often found himself in deadly situations, like we see in Acts 14. But Paul never turned his back and walked away. Instead, Paul continuously put his faith in God, got up, brushed himself off, and went back into the city to preach the gospel. But Paul doesn't do this because he has faith that God will deliver him or keep him safe from the crowd. Instead, he does it because he has faith that he can endure even death through Jesus. So what are you afraid of? What's holding you back? What's causing you 
to be the little kid at the bottom of the stairs with the lights turned off, completely controlled by fear? Are you scared to talk to your neighbors or your friends about church? Afraid they'll think of you a little bit differently or maybe think of you poorly? Maybe that they'll have questions that you won't know the answers to. Paul says that we can fearlessly spread the gospel. We don't have to be scared because we can do all things through Jesus. We can endure all things through Jesus. He is the one who gives us the strength we need. A step you can take this week is to invite someone to church. Pray about a friend, a coworker, a classmate, maybe a family member do you think needs Jesus and aim to invite them over the next week. These cards are in your bulletin and there's more out in the lobby if you want to take even two or three and you can use them as a reminder and a tool to invite someone. Be fearless of what people may say or what your friends might think of you. Be fearless because we can depend on Jesus. We talked about how it was silly for me to be afraid of the dark when I was a little kid. And yet, it's silly for us to be controlled by a fear of these trivial, worldly things when God says that we can endure all things through him. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray today that you will keep your promise, that we can put our faith in you and that you will deliver. Give us the ability to be generous and courageous. We pray that you will give us endurance And I pray that you can help us all take a step of fearlessness this week and that that step be in your name and for your glory. Amen.